Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning to go into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Red, myself, a internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. And without further ado, we're going to jump right in and run the list on this very important topic, the variceal upper GI bleed. Our case that's presenting today, a 48-year-old gentleman comes into the emergency department. He's had a long and complex history of alcohol dependence and alcohol use disorder. Unfortunately, that has led to cirrhosis, which has been complicated by um, SBP, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, in the past. And he's also been known to have esophageal varices that have been seen on EGD. Um, He has not had any episodes of hematemesis before, but now he's brought in by his girlfriend who reports that he's been having very high volume um, vomiting of blood and both the patient and her are very scared. His blood pressure is 92 over 57, his heart rate's 107. Um, He's slightly tachypneic, breathing about 20 times a minute and his SATs are 92% on room air. When you get called by the emergency medicine resident, he says this patient has clear stigmata of cirrhosis on exam and really, you know, expresses some concern to you that he does seem to be slightly altered and he's a little bit slow to answer questions. When you review his meds list in the EMR, you find that he's on uh, Natalol, Bactrim, and Spironolactone, which have been started by his outpatient hepatologist. So, Naveen, This patient comes in, you're immediately thinking about not just upper GI bleeds, but specifically upper GI bleed in a patient with known varices that have already been documented. Why don't you just walk us through your general uh, framework for thinking about these patients and sort of any other background uh, that might be helpful before we jump into his management? All right. So as we discussed in our uh, non-variceal upper GI bleed case uh, podcast, I always like to use an anatomical approach. But to be honest, in these scenarios with a patient who has known portal hypertension, actually has known esophageal varices, a variceal bleed is highest on my differential because it has to be. These these bleeds are very severe. They carry a mortality risk of 15 to 20%. So you really need to jump on them quick and be ready to give them the therapy that they need. So I'm presuming this is a variceal bleed until I do my endoscopy and see what it actually is. So I just want to emphasize variceal bleeds need to be managed as such until you can, and even before you confirm that it's a variceal source. And then the reason for this is that you just have to understand with these patients with cirrhosis, they already they have predisposing portal hypertension. So the bleeding is much more brisk when they're bleeding from the varices, and that's what drives the mortality risk. So I'm thinking about how can I lower, how can I decrease that portal hypertension? But even before that, I need to make them resuscitated and I need to protect their airway. This patient you're mentioning, seems like he may have some degree of hepatic encephalopathy. He was having active hematemesis. So this is a patient that generally I would recommend gets intubated before we think about doing an upper endoscopy. So I'm thinking about airway management, hemodynamics, and then me- measures I can do to drop down that those portal pressures to hopefully reduce the risk of him rebleeding again. Excellent. So this is a patient who's coming in, and we're really thinking about ICU admission. We're going to make sure they're stabilized. And I just wanted to say before we go any further, sort of a caveat for this episode, it's going to be that while there's 
as the listener knows, a lot of different aspects that go into the inpatient management of a decompensated cirrhotic patient. We're going to sort of uh, focus today on just the aspects of the interseal bleed. But along with that, and very looped into that, is actually the uh, primary prophylaxis that we think about for these patients. So um, it's just important, I think, to have that context when we're contacting our GI consultants when you're admitting this patient to the hospital. So Naveen, what are the sort of the staples of what you think about for uh, primary prophylaxis of variceal bleeds? Right. So if I saw this patient in clinic, an outpatient clinic, stable, was not bleeding at the time, was just setting up, let's say he was just establishing care with, uh, with me. One of the first things I want to do is get is schedule him for a baseline upper endoscopy because I want to see does he have varices or not. And the only way to know that is on upper endoscopy. So if I do the upper endoscopy and I see varices, we then can decide on what, how we're going to prevent those varices from bleeding. And you have two options. You can give a non-selective beta blocker. And the reason those work is that the non-selective beta blockade blocks the beta-1 heart contractility and the beta-2 antagonist blocks the mesenteric arterial dilation. So you're blocking both beta-1 and beta-2, but you're not blocking alpha. So you get unopposed alpha vasoconstriction of the mesenteric arterioles. So when you block down, you, you reverse the splanchnic vasodilation that occurs in cirrhosis. And by clamping down on those arterioles, you decrease the flow into the portal venous system, and that thereby decreases the portal pressure. So that's why non-selective beta blockade works for primary pro prophylaxis of variceal bleeding. The other option you have, if, particularly if the varices are medium or large, is actually to do serial endoscopic variceal ligation. That's where we put ver um, rubber bands over esophageal varices endoscopically. The issue with that, uh, Walker, as you can imagine, if you're just putting a band on the varix, where does that pressure end up going? You just push it somewhere else. So you're not actually uh, addressing the underlying portal hypertension. And for that reason, you have to come back and do another endoscopy in three or four weeks to make sure those varices haven't recurred. And it turns out if you look head to head, beta blockade versus banding, there's no difference. So in general, we prefer to do beta blockade unless the varices are quite large, and then we'll do banding. That makes a lot of sense since you're getting at the actual physiology. And Excellent. Walker, if you, if you don't have any varices on the endoscopy, just know that you do have to repeat an endoscopy, usually anywhere between one to three years, depending on how severe their liver disease, are they currently um, still having injury to the liver, because those varices can form in the future, and that's when you then want to start the uh, primary prophylaxis. And we can be thankful that the folks who are following this gentleman in the outpatient setting has sort of done that background for us so we knew how high risk he was coming in. So whereas uh, we always want to think about risk stratification, in this case, you know, likely the labs are going to show an elevated BU into creatinine ratio above 30 that's consistent with upper GI bleed. But just by definition, as we've already addressed, this is a high risk patient. And that's sort of all we need to know is that this is a variceal bleed. We at least need to understand it that way until proven otherwise. So really, let's just get down to the management steps here. Um, so of course, we're going to, uh, as we always do in GI bleeds, prioritize access, uh, resuscitation with IV fluids and blood products if needed, IV PPI. Past that, how else do you think about specific meds you reach for or other aspects of management when this patient presents? Great. So I'm still, just underscore the uh, restrictive transfusion strategy, we're still okay. only transfusing for hemoglobin less than seven. Um, because if you actually look at that, the, that landmark study that showed the benefit of the restrictive transfusion strategy, the patients benefited most were those with portal hypertension. 
So remember, we're still th- sticking to that hemoglobin less than seven restrictive transfusion strategy. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I want to drop those portal pressures. How can I reduce that? And the way we do that is with IV octreotide. That decreases the flow into the splenic system and thereby decreases the hypertension and thus the bleeding. And the way we do that is we bolus with a 50 microgram IV dose and then start a drip at 50 micrograms an hour. And that should last. You should continue that treatment for three to five days, even after the endoscopy. Um, that When we do this, it reduces the risk of re-bleeding, but importantly, does not improve mortality. The only thing that improves mortality, in addition to that restrictive transfusion strategy, is antibiotic prophylaxis. Interesting, yeah, I yeah. wouldn't have known that. And, the, and I think the, the other interesting thing to point out about the infectious prophylaxis is that this is true regardless of their ascites status. We often think that we're huh. preventing SBP, but it's actually that we're preventing any infectious complication, which are quite high in patients with cirrhosis, particularly if they're presenting with an upper GI bleed, things like UTI, respiratory infections. So that's why we start IV ceftriaxone. It should be continued for five to seven days on these patients who are presenting with upper GI bleeding. Uh, to reduce that risk. Perfect. So, so glad we sort of started our patient on the ceftriaxone because actually, um, you know, did have an oxygen requirement as well coming in. And um, in addition, we have resuscitated the patient initially. And so now EGD becomes the next step. So we'll give our pre-EGD erythromycin um, and then send them down to the endoscopy suite. What sort of timing do we need to think about with variceal bleeds? Yeah, so we move quickly, we move more quickly for the variceal bleeds. Whereas with non-variceal upper GI bleeding, the recommendation is to do an endoscopy within 24 hours. With variceal, we want to do it within 12 hours. So we will either come to you if you're in the ICU to do so, or if they're stable enough, bring them down to the endoscopy suite. So again, the magic timing is 12 hours. And if we see a varix that is bleeding or has stigmata of recent bleeding, we'll then put rubber bands over those varices uh, to treat them because that's actually the best endoscopic therapy we have uh, currently. What is the team taking care of the patient after the EGD? What are like the most important things to prioritize? Because I know the, the care is not over then. It's yeah, exactly. Situation. Absolutely, because the rebleeding risk is quite high. So you definitely want to keep a close eye to see if there's any evidence of rebleeding, whether it be uh, recurrent hematemesis, melna, although you have, to, you have to remember that there is going to be blood passing through the GI tract. So don't be surprised if you see melna, that may be evidence of old blood, but correlate that to vital signs, hemoglobin changes to see if they're actually re-bleeding. Um, also monitor the mental status closely, you know, with that, that influx of amino acids and proteins from the red blood cells that are getting digested in the upper GI tract, that can lead to worsening hepatic encephalopathy. So many of these patients need lactulose while they're in-house, but we can actually taper that off once they are outpatients, once they're no longer bleeding. And then Excellent. lastly, you're going to finish, remember, finish off that three to five days of octreotide, keep them on the IV PPI. Oftentimes after banding, you can develop ulcers. So we want to make sure those don't form and they bleed from those, and then you're going to finish off that infectious uh, prophylaxis with a ceftriaxone from anywhere from five to seven days. Great. So before getting back to our case, let's just talk briefly about secondary prophylaxis since we mentioned primary earlier. I know earlier you said the non-selective beta blocker is really the key here. Is that the same in the secondary prophylaxis? Yeah, Walker, it's it's definitely part of the part of the therapy. So, but the difference is you do both. You do the non-selective beta blockade and you set them up for endoscopic variceal ligation with rubber bands. So you do beta blockade plus serial endoscopies, and you keep doing these endoscopies, banding the varices until you've obliterated them, and then. You just follow them up with closely uh, spaced uh, endoscopies to make sure they don't recur. 
Great. So really, after the initial episode, it's not over. You need to keep following these patients very closely in the outpatient setting. Exactly. So getting back to our case, our 48-year-old guy who came in um, with alcohol use disorder, cirrhosis, complicated by known esophageal varices, who became increasingly altered and hemodynamically unstable, as discussed, was stabilized in the ICU, was scoped there, uh, was banded successfully, and became more hemodynamically stable after that. Actually, he did have some ascites. His diagnostic para was negative, less than 250 polys, mm-hmm. but he did um, actually have evidence of a pneumonia, so he was already on the ceftriaxone and got some azithromycin as well. Ultimately, we discussed him with our GI team and was discharged with the plan for those serial EGDs. So this is a typical presentation of a very ill patient who comes in. What are, if you had to boil it down to three takeaways you want our listener not to forget, what would those be? Nice. So number one is just remember how high the mortality is with these variceal upper GI bleeds. Again, it's about 15 to 20%. So you really need to manage them presuming that it's a variceal bleed if your suspicion is high because the therapy is different than with our non-variceal upper GI bleeds, which leads me to my number two pearl, which is in addition to starting IV PPI, you're also going to start IV octreotide on presentation. You don't wait for the endoscopy to confirm that they're having a variceal bleed. Do it right when they come in. Also start that infectious prophylaxis with the IV ceftriaxone, and then make sure your GI colleagues are aware because they should be doing the upper endoscopy within 12 hours once they're adequately resuscitated. And then number three, just as you mentioned, Walker, the bleeding management doesn't stop with endoscopy. You still have to finish off that IV octreotide infusion while they're in-house, finish off their antibiotic prophylaxis, and then you want to think about secondary prophylaxis. How can we prevent this bleed from occurring again? And you do that by continuing them on the beta blockade, the non-selective beta blocker, such as natalol, but then also setting them up for serial endoscopic variceal band ligations as an outpatient. Excellent. Thanks so much for summarizing, Naveen. These are patients who are very ill and time is of the essence, but you will be well prepared now to handle these patients when they present because you'll know the first things to start them on and how to get them stabilized for that EGD within 12 hours of presenting. Thanks so much again for tuning in. We hope you found this episode of Run the List helpful and look forward to further episodes.